Amen. I tell you what, if, if that doesn't excite you, then your wood is wet today, all right? And uh, so that was wonderful. Thank you, choir. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Children's Choir. And also, not only greeting uh, Charles and, and Doris and Alfred and Ben and Donna, but found out that uh, we have connection with Gina Williams as well. She grew up at First Baptist uh, in Prattville and was a part of our children's ministry and student ministry. And so glad to see that she's the director of your preschool and uh, children's ministry here. Her younger sister, Kate, Katie, was a very close friend of our youngest daughter. They used to get in all kinds of trouble. And, um, and so we're, we're glad to kind of catch up a little bit of what's happening with her mom and her sister and brother uh, as well. What a, what a joy it is to be with you here at uh, First Baptist Selma. I had the joy of being over at Elkdale and uh, for those 11 months and enjoyed sharing the ministry here in the Selma community. And once again, God giving us opportunity for a couple of Sundays to be with you to preach the word of God. I want to begin this morning by sharing a story from a movie that's one of my favorite movies. And let's see, is my mic on? I apologize. Let's try that. Is it on now? Test one, two, three. All right. Thank you. I uh, didn't realize I turned it off, so I apologize. It's not his fault, all right, up there. But I want to share a story with you that some of you may have seen. It's one of my favorite stories. It is uh, called Quigley Down Under. How many of you remember seeing that movie, Quigley Down Under? It's a story about, that Tom Selleck stars in, and he plays an American uh, cowboy by the name of Matthew Quigley. Well, he answers an advertisement to go to Australia, and they need uh, someone that is uh, handy with a gun. And so there is this evil rancher, and of course, Matthew didn't know it at the time that he was evil, but hired him uh, as, a, as a gunslinger, so to speak. But he used a long rifle. And so he hired him to kind of keep things uh, under control. But what he didn't know was that this evil rancher and the corrupt government, they were against the aborigines. And so it was their desire to destroy and get rid of all of the aborigines. Well, Matthew Quigley caught on real quick, and he wasn't going to have anything to do with that. So he became somewhat of an outlaw because he was protecting the aborigines. At the very close of the movie at the very climax of the movie, is when Matthew Quigley goes up against the rancher who was a, a prized himself as a, son, uh, as a gunslinger, and he goes up against him, puts the gun in Quigley's uh, belt, and there were two other of his associates there, and so they're going to draw against Matthew Quigley. Well, by the time that that happens, he shoots the three the rancher and his two hands, the three of them dead. Matthew is standing there by himself. And then in comes the corrupt militia. And they have now surrounded Matthew Quigley. And as they have surrounded him, and they're going to take him in, they say, we're going to take you in and hang you. And he says, well, I'm not going to hang. And so they point their guns to him, and they're about to shoot. But there is a, a, a breeze that starts blowing through the compound. And sand starts to blow. And as the major leading this militia, and as the soldiers are uh, sitting on their horses, they're, they're wondering what's going on. And as they look around, they see they are totally surrounded by aborigines. Hundreds and hundreds of aborigines have now appeared, magically, have appeared, 
and they are ready to do battle with militia if they kill Matthew Quigley. Well, the major decides we're going to leave, and so he leads his troops out of the compound. And as soon as they have turned the horses and they are moving out of the compound, the wind stops, the dust settles down, and when they're gone, Matthew quickly looks around, and all the aborigines are gone. Now, this fictional story mirrors the story that I want to share with you this morning. Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to uh, 2 Kings chapter 6, 2 Kings chapter 6, and we're going to look at this story for just a moment, 2 Kings chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. And we're going to look at a story that is very similar to the story I just told you. I don't know about you, but the past two and a half years have been some of the most difficult that I have seen our country experience. With the pandemic, with the riots that went on the summer of 2020, with a contentious election that we had in November of 2020, and then turned around and had the, the January 6th incident. Then we had, of course, the supply train issues of, of uh, the materials that we needed here in our country and resources. And then on top of that, the LGBTQ and all of the gender identity started surfacing and social justice and just we could go on and on and on. CRT, critical race theory, uh, all these issues we, we just seemed to just, just to blow. They didn't just explode on the scene. They'd been under the surface for quite a while. But it seemed like it exploded to the majority of Americans. And I've run into people, I've talked to people, and, and they were wondering, where has God been in the midst of this? Where's God been in all of this? Um, for some people, their faith has wavered during these days, during these months, and during these past couple of years. So in our passive scripture, we're going to be talking about learning to trust in God because we're going to see a story out of the life of Elisha where God is helping his people to once again understand that they can trust in him. And it's a lesson, learning to trust in God, that we need to learn over and over and over again. The story's about Elisha. Elisha was one of the prophets. Remember, in that day, a prophet did two things. He would foretell the, tr uh, the, the future, but he would also foretell the truth. So a prophet would, would be given the word of God, and they, would, and, and they would tell what's going to happen in the future. God would use them to do that. But they also were the preachers of that day. And they went to school. They called them the school of the prophets. Samuel, who was the last of the judges and the first of the prophets, had a school in Ramah. There were other schools in Gilgal and Jericho and Bethel as well. And Elisha was one of those prophets that was schooled by Elijah. And then he became the, the star prophet, so to speak, because God decided he was going to take Elijah on home. And he gave Elisha a double portion of his blessing and then he was raptured, a beautiful picture of what's going to happen to the church. What happened to Elijah is going to happen to us who are living when Jesus comes again. He's raptured. He's taken up in the whirlwind into heaven. And so Elisha is continuing his ministry. By the way, outside of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, no one performed as many miracles as did Elisha during that time. So the story I want you to see is, and you have an outline we provided for you, and I appreciate Elaine doing that for us and the office staff, 
But if you want to follow along, we're going to look at the context. We're going to look at uh, the lessons, and then we're going to look at the application uh, in these next few moments. First of all, the context. We'll not take time to read verses 8 uh, through 14, but let me just tell you the story. The king of Syria was raiding Israel. This was quite common in that day. The, the, the Syrian uh, king would often come down and do guerrilla warfare and, and, and brought a lot of fear, a lot of frustration into the, the, into the life of, of Israel. And that's what was happening here. But God gave Elisha the ability to know where the troops were coming from and so that the Israeli troops would not have to worry about going to battle with the Syrians who overpowered them not only with number, numbers but also with weaponry as well. And so God kept giving Elisha the word where the Syrian army would be. And so the Syrian king, Ben-Hadad, he became quite paranoid. He, he was wondering if he had a spy in his camp, that if not one of his own were giving the enemy the information of where the troops were. And so he calls his officials together. He says, which one of you is betraying me? And one of the officials spoke up and said, King, it's, it's not us, but it's Elisha. It's the prophet. His God is giving him that information. It's as if he is hearing you whisper in your bedchamber. And so undoubtedly, Ben-Hadad been telling uh, his wife and, uh, w- what was happening, and he said it's as if Elijah was right there and getting all of the truth about where the troops are going to, to be. So what Ben-Hadad does is he decides uh, that he's going to send out his spies to find out where Elijah was, and they found out that he was in Dothan. Now, that's not Dothan, Alabama, all right? We're not talking about Dothan, Alabama, but we are talking about a Dothan in Israel, those of us that went to uh, Israel, we were in Megiddo, where the Battle of Armageddon is going to take place in the Valley of Jezreel. And just south, approximately 10 miles south of Megiddo, is Dothan. And Dothan is about five to six miles north of Samaria. And so that's where Elijah was. So Ben-Hadad just said, I'm going to send all the troops that I have right here, all my troops, all the chariots, uh, everyone there, and, and we're going to get Elijah. So at night, he sends his troop. You can imagine what those soldiers were thinking. We're going after one man, all of this power, all of the army, all the resources, just for one man? And so they travel all night. They surround Dothan. And we pick up the story in verse 15. It says, When the servant of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, no, my lord. What shall we do? The servant asked. All right, that's the context. That's the, that's the storyline. Now let's look at the lessons. Because here is one of those young prophets, a student prophet. He's the servant of Elijah, Elisha, and he, he's, he doesn't understand. He gets up, maybe he could go out and gather wood for, for the fire. Maybe he's uh, having his morning devotions. But he sees this army and he comes back. And he is crying out to Elisha, what are we going to do? So now let's look at what Elijah has to say. Beginning in verse 16, he says, don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. The first lesson we can learn here is uh, that we have an encouraging uh, uh, word, an encouraging promise is given here. He says, don't be afraid. 
Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. It says, don't be afraid. You know, the Bible, and you've probably heard preachers say it, you probably read it in a book or two, uh, says that there's about 365, do not be afraid, fear not, uh, fear nots in the Bible. One for every day of the year. I'm seeing some heads nod, so most of you, you've heard that. And I've not counted them all. I take the word of some of the preachers that I've read, and they say 365, do not be afraid, fear nots. Well, how many promises are in the Bible? We have an encouraging promise here. It says, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. How many promises do you imagine are in the Bible? Well, there's a man by the name of Hubert Locklear. He has written a book. He's written a number of them, all the parables of the Bible, all the men in the Bible, all the women in the Bible. Well, he's done one called all the promises in the Bible. There are 5,457 promises in the Bible. That's more than 20 promises a day that God gives us to encourage us. And here we have one of them says, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And what Elisha was doing to this young man, he wasn't giving him information. He was trying to encourage his faith. He was trying to lift him up. So here's an encouraging promise that's trying to lift the faith. You need to to have faith here. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then we see an intercessory prayer in the first part of verse 17. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Here's an intercessory prayer. Open his eyes. Again, he's not asking him to open his physical eyes. He's looked out there, and he is seeing this massive army of Ben-Hadad, and he's seen all the resources, all the chariots, all the horses, all the soldiers. No, it wasn't that his physical eyes needed to be open. It was his spiritual eyes that needed to be open. And so he is asking God, open his eyes spiritually so that he may see that you are with us right here. Now, folks, let's stop right here for a moment. One of the things that I fear is that often in life, our faith is weakened because we're not sensing that the insight of what's happening around us and what God wants to do around us. There's some of us that may have some blindness. We know that Satan likes to blind us. He likes to, to do whatever he can to, to, to deceive us into what's happening, what God wants to, be, wants to do in this world. But let's admit something. We get awful lazy at times. We become quite complacent about our faith. In fact, we get to that place that we go, go through so many routines. We're up in the morning. We have our routine. We're out the door for those that are working, those that go to school, for those that are retired. We have our day pretty well planned for us. And, and so we, we, we kind of follow a routine. And if we're not careful, we can go all day and never sense the presence of God and see what God is doing in our midst. And here this prophet was sharing with his servant, Lord, open his eyes so he can see what's, what's around, what's going on uh, in our midst. And there's something else here, another lesson, I think, is that there is the, the presence of God. This is another lesson that we can learn in this passage of Scripture. 
that God was present, that God was working in the midst of all of this. Because he says in the last part of verse 17, Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That there was the presence of God. Sometimes we get the idea that when we come to worship, oh, Lord, please join us in worship. God's already here. Wherever you are, the Spirit of God is in you. Wherever you are, God's already there. God was already present in Dothan, in Israel at this time. Elijah didn't have to call upon God be there. God was already there. And he was there in mass. He was there with all, the, uh, all of the, the spiritual army of heaven. All of, his, all of his angels' army was there ready to do battle. That's what that verse is all about, verse 17. Then the Lord opened the eyes and said, Look, the hills are full of horses and chariots and the fire all around Elijah. God was already there. And how many times do we need to be reminded, God is here already working at First Baptist Church Selma. He's already working. He has been working. He's working now. He's going to keep on working. We don't have to beg for the presence of God, but what we do need to to do is to open our eyes and see that God really is working in our midst. There was a family that was selling a house, and they were having an open house, and the family was there the first day of the open house, and the father told the children, now, you, you behave, don't, don't talk to anybody, don't tell anybody anything, you know, you just, you just be seen and be quiet. And so as soon as people started gathering, there's one particular man, as he's walking around, he saw the little seven-year-old child of that family, and he walked up to that child, a little girl, and he just whispered, he said, are there any secrets in this house? And she just turned and walked away, did exactly what her daddy said. A few minutes later, he came back around, and he said, are there any secrets in this house? And again, she, she turned and walked away, but the third time she couldn't help herself, he walked up to her and said, are there any secrets in this house? And with a big smile, she says, there are angels in this house watching over us. What an insight. What an insight. You know where that comes from? Listen to this. In Psalm 34, verse 7, it says this. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. The the army of the Lord, the angels of the Lord, they're encamped around us. And when we trust in him, when we fear in him, he delivers us. The presence of God is already here. And one last lesson, and that is the deliverance of God. Now, we'll not take time to read verses 18 through 23, but, but let me just give you an insight of what happened. Here, this army has surrounded. Elijah has prayed for the open eyes. The servant has now seen all that God was doing in their midst. So Elijah prays to God, said, God, strike them blind. Strike this army blind. And they were struck blind. And then he goes out to the commander and says, y'all have come to the wrong, wrong town and you're, you're on the wrong road. Let me lead you to where you need to be to find the man you were looking for. And he led them the five or six miles south to Samaria, the capital city, where all the army of Israel was at that particular time. And the army of Israel surrounded the army of Syria. And then he prayed, God, open their eyes. What a surprise when their eyes were opened from their blindness. And he told the king, feed them and let them go. And they were fed 
and then they were out of there. Now let's look at the application quickly. There are five points I want to make real quick, the application to our story. And the first one is this, look honestly on, on the, at the enemies that may lay siege in your life. Look honestly at the enemy that may be besieging your life. What are the enemies that we see today? It'd be real easy because we have a, an election coming here. What, in nine, nine days, we're going to be having another uh, contentious election here in the United States. We may be fine in our area and in this, this state of ours, of, of Alabama, but there's a lot of contention. And so that's facing. Some people get caught up listening so much to the talking heads on, on radio or on television or podcasts. It's easy for us to become somewhat discouraged and to see the politicians as our enemies. Folks, we need to see that Satan is our enemy. Satan is our enemy. He may deceive us, but Satan is our enemy. We're not each other's enemies, okay? We're not. And we look at the fact that in our culture today, that there, there's the marginalizing of Christianity. And so we see, see that happening. And, and so we, we think that's, that's the big enemy. And yes, there, there is that enemy out there where Christianity is being marginalized. And, and we see all sorts of weird things that are happening in our country that none of us grew up with in our day. But it's what we're facing today. It's what our children are facing. It's what our grandchildren and great-grandchildren are having to face today. But I'm going to make it a little more personal. Let's stop, and, let's stop and think about ourselves. What is the enemy that may be laying siege of your life right now? Is it a health issue? Is it conflict in the family with a husband and wife, children, parents, other extended family members? Is that the issue? Does it have to do something with finances? Retirement, your future, is, is that what's bothering you? Is that what you see as the enemy right now? Could it be death itself? I've, I've done two funerals in the past seven days. And so that, that's heavy on the hearts of a lot of people. Death itself. And our pending death as time goes on. Could it be the fact that we have an enemy called the, uh, what? The Hebrew writer in chapter 12 called the besetting sin. There's sin in our life. There's this enemy. There may be an addiction. It may be something that just keeps on hammering and hammering and hammering at us. Or it could be simple, as simple as procrastination. Or it could be as bad as anger, lack of forgiveness, resentment, anger. On and on we could go. We need to acknowledge, honestly, honestly acknowledge, what is the enemy that is seizing us? Notice in the scripture in verse 15, when the servant of the Lord of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Physically, that was his enemy. For us, there may be a physical enemy, but there may be more of a relationship enemy that we're having to deal with. But we need to acknowledge the enemy that is besieged us. There's something else in verse 15 that I think we need to acknowledge, and that is acknowledge the fears that you have, but do it within the fellowship of the church. Do it within the fellowship of believers of faith, in the fellowship of faith. Acknowledge those fears. That, that's what this man did. Look at the last part of verse 15. Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. He was afraid. And so he acknowledged it. 
So can I encourage you that if there's an enemy that you can identify and it's besieged, then acknowledge it, but do it in the fellowship of faith. Do it with a believer. Do it with a spouse. Do it with your children or parents, a, a, a friend, a, a, a trusted believer in Christ here at First Baptist Selma. But use the opportunity to acknowledge the fear. Get it out there. And can I encourage you to be careful of acknowledging out there in the community? Sometimes we have a tendency, we're, we can be bad as Baptists about this, gossiping and all kinds of things like that, and slandering and whatever. And we can get out in the community and, and put down our church, put down our friends, put down this, that, and the other. That doesn't bode well for our testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not saying we hide things. I've just told you, acknowledge your fears, but with someone that's trusted and that's a fellow believer in Christ. But be careful about going out. I, I, I have a hard time understanding why we want to go out and show off our dirty laundry. You wouldn't do it in your home, and let's not do it when there's personal issues that we're having to face. There's something else that we need to do as well, number three, and that is believe the promises of God. Believe the promises of God. What does he say there in verse 16? Don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those that are with them. The Apostle Paul would take up the same thing over in 1 Corinthians chapter, or excuse me, Romans chapter 8. He would say, then what should we say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, no one when God is for us. So we believe the promises of God. There's one that I've come to learn in recent months, Psalm 50, verse 15. I want you to trust me in your times of trouble so I can restore you and you can give me glory. Listen to that again, Psalm 50, verse 15. I want you to trust me in your times of trouble so I can rescue you and you can give me glory. Here, we're, we're reminded that, that the trust of God, it starts with you. These are 5,457, but it starts with you believing the promises of God, that if you trust in him, whatever troubles you're having, that he is going to rescue you, and he gets the glory. He will always get the glory if you trust in him. And number four, pray for the open eyes of spiritual insight. Pray for the open eyes of spiritual insight. For yourself, for your spouse, your family, for your brothers and sisters in Christ here at First Baptist Selma. Pray that open eyes. Uh, Brother Jeff, thank you for choosing the song, Open My Eyes, because I have it here to quote, open my eyes that I might see glimpses of truth thou hast for me. That's the prayer we need to have. Or we can use the contemporary artist, Michael W. Smith. He has said this, Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. To see you high and lifted up, shining in the light of your glory. Pour out your power and love as we sing, Holy, holy, holy. Let's pray for that insight God wants to give us. It was 95 years ago, it's hard to believe, 95 years ago, Charles Lindbergh flew across the Atlantic, the first transatlantic crossing. He took off, headed north up the eastern seaboard, and then he made his right turn, and he was flying right into a fog bank, into a cloud bank. 
And quickly the moisture gathered on the wings. And as he was flying uh, higher and higher, the, the, it began to ice, but the plane began to drag and start pulling him back toward earth. And so what he decided to do was just to just all out, pull back on the throttle, and he burst out of that cloud bank into the brilliant sun above the clouds, and the ice began to melt. That's what we have to do. In the same way, we've got to pull back. We have to admit, God, I've made a mess of my life. I feel like the Syrian army is, is camped all around me. What do we do? We pull back the throttle and find ourselves in the very presence of God. And as we open our eyes and realize he's there with us, he's ministering, we can trust in him, then there's victory in our life. And the last point I want to make, the last application in this truth is this. If you're really going to trust in God, then trust God with your whole life. If you're going to trust in him, trust in him with your whole life. I read the story about a typewriter walker, and he was performing in a circus, and so he asked the crowd before he stepped onto the typewriter, he said, do you believe I can walk across this typewriter with, uh, uh, with my pole? And, and they've seen this before, some of them, they said, yeah, sure you can. So he walked across with the pole. And then he said, do you believe I can walk across without my pole? And they said, well, sure you can. You can walk across without your pole. So he put his pole aside. He walked all the way back across that typewriter. And then he asked them, as he put a chair on his shoulders, he said, do you believe I can walk across the typewriter without the pole, but with this chair on my shoulders? And they all said, yes, you can do that. And so he walked across that typewriter with that chair all the way to the other side. Then he asked this question, who would volunteer to sit on this chair? Do you believe that I can walk across with someone on this chair? Do you believe it? And no one volunteered to do that. And probably none of us would either. But if we're going to believe God, believe God with all of our life, the whole life. Listen to these scriptures, Psalm 49, verse 23, anyone who trusts in me will not be disappointed. Jeremiah 17, 7, blessed are those who trust in the Lord and have made him their hope and their confidence. Now, this morning, I've been preaching to the church. I've been preaching to the body of Christ. But let me say a word here. In John chapter 3, verse 3, it says, Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Maybe there's somebody here, and you've been listening, but it's not computing, and you're wondering, well, hey, I've never seen the, the kingdom of God. Well, the Bible says, unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. And I stand as the pastor this morning that is sharing a simple story of learning to trust in God, because that's what that servant had to do. Can you imagine that servant going back after the class uh, that day? Maybe he had a journal. Today, I learned a valuable lesson about learning to trust in God. And knowing me, I'll probably have to learn that lesson over and over and over again. Amen? And it is a lesson we have to learn over and over again. But maybe there's somebody here and you have never committed your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Today is that day. Today is an opportunity God has given you. You have to be born again to see 
the kingdom of God. And that means admitting that you are a sinner, that you are an enemy of God, and that you believe that Jesus was God's answer to pay the debt of your sin so that no longer you would be an enemy, but you could become the friend of God. But you do it by confessing him as Savior and Lord in your life. There will be those that would be glad to help you at the end of the service. You just let yourself be known as we're down front, and we'll help you to make that commitment to Jesus Christ. But I want to say something to those of us, and we've seen the kingdom of God. But maybe there is a blindness at the moment, and we've allowed some, some things to blur our vision of the kingdom. Maybe it's because of our routine, some complacency. Maybe it's because of sin in our life that's unconfessed, just plain neglect in our life. Maybe something challenging is going on. I just encourage you once again, let's pray. Lord, open the eyes of our heart so that we may see you. Would you bow your heads with me? Another wonderful contemporary artist by the name of Chris Tomlin, the lyrics to one of his songs. I know who goes before me. I know who stands behind. The God of angels' armies is always on my side. The one who reigns forever, he is a friend of mine, the God of angel armies. He is always on my side. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time that we have shared in preaching the word and seeing a story with a very simple application. Father, we see the promise that is there for us. We also see, Father, the intercessory prayer. And we also see that your presence is always with us, and it is your desire to deliver us. So then, Father, as we begin to apply the truth each and every day, help us to acknowledge the enemy that may be laying siege. May we be careful to acknowledge our fears within our fellowship of faith. May we be willing, Father, also, that as we walk with you in this way, that we too will believe all of your promises. And then we do pray for open eyes. And then, Father, we want to believe with our whole hearts. May this encourage our faith, whatever we're facing right now, whatever is in our future, know that you will always be with us. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.